Welcome to Sustrans Street Talks podcast, where we explore some of the ideas, issues and opportunities for changing the way we travel in cities. We hear from professionals, commentators and campaigners and meet with others involved in cycling, walking, architecture and design on how we can make more livable cities. I'm Nick Sanderson, Senior Policy Officer with Sustrans in London, and on our first Street Talk podcast, journalist Laura Laker interviews New York City's former Deputy Director of Transport and the current Communications and Advocacy Director for the US-based Transit Centre, John Olcott. John was on a short visit to Europe and we managed to catch him fresh off the Eurostar from Paris and ask him about his experiences delivering change in New York City and his views on what London can learn. He also speaks about the role of politicians, campaigners and community leaders and the impact new technology is having on urban transport. Here it is. So I'm Laura Laker and I'm here for this first Street Talks podcast at Sustrans headquarters in central London. With me fresh off a train from Paris is John Orcutt. Um, John Orcutt, for those of you who don't know him, was Director of Policy for New York City uh, Transport between 2007 and 2014, uh, during which time he oversaw major changes to New York City streets, including the introduction of the City Bike Scheme and the Vision Zero programme, whose aim was to eliminate all road deaths and serious injuries, uh, making New York the first of the US cities to do so. Uh, John has three decades of experience campaigning for and implementing sustainable transport in cities, and he now works at US Urban Mobility Foundation Transit Centre as their Director of Communications and Advocacy. So, welcome to London, John. Um, it's been a, it's a bit of a short trip, so I'm glad that you could make time to come and talk to us. So I think we'll start by asking you, given your previous roles, first of all as a campaigner and then as um, director of um, transportation in New York, it seemed like quite a statement of intent um, when Mike Bloomberg, the then mayor, employed you to, to do that job. Um, and I was wondering what the situation was at the time, um, what did you do to change New York for the better? Well, it's a, it's a good, it's a really good story about how change happens. And one of the things I tell people who are in what seem like intractable situations where they've been pushing and talking and um, developing ideas for a long time without a lot of tangible progress is that you have to keep doing that because at some point those historical accidents like a good mayor or uh, a leader who sees something all of a sudden and that lightning strikes and then they're ready to back some kind of significant change, you already have developed the agenda and it's ready to go. And that's what happened in New York in 2007. Um, transportation alternatives and other groups, uh, uh, communications outfit called Streets Blog was formed just in 2006. And so there was a, there was a, and, and there are, there's a whole ecosystem of groups pushing in various ways and developing ideas for a much more humane and uh, less car dependent city. And you were central to that, weren't you, to that movement? Yeah, and I, I helped to run a couple of different groups at different times that, that were helping to build that agenda. And what happened was um, we got a very smart mayor, but that was earlier. Was, he was elected at the end of 2000 um, or 2001. And, you know, he came in and he was doing a lot of things. He was definitely an implementer, but he didn't know anything about transportation. But what happened was it was started to become very clear when London had done congestion charging in 2003 and Delano came to Paris and was starting to change the streets and um, you know push things out of the way of bikes and buses and then launch Velib in 2007 and um, places like Bogota were getting all kinds of attention to their bus system which you know basically built a whole new public transport system from nothing um, <clears throat> and there were all these groups saying Bloomberg why aren't we doing better and he was saying, okay, why aren't we doing better? And he was starting to ask his people in City Hall, why aren't we doing better? And they said, you know, there's no good reason we really should be doing better. And so they, they crafted a very big planning process. And originally, and, and there had been a, a number of real problems in the city around um, electricity and, you know, and there had been a transport strike that showed the, you know, the absolute dependence of the city on transit. Um, they were going to create an infrastructure plan. And they're like, oh, yeah, great. That's going to be so boring. <clears throat> so they, they said, well, we can do an infrastructure plan, but it can be about sustainability. Because this, again, was at the time when Al Gore was starting to get sort of a global audience around his book. And, you know, just climate was coming onto the agenda. And, you know, 
in part because of even people like Ken Livingstone saying congestion charging is about climate change. And so that the plan got a lot more exciting and he wanted to, Bloomberg wanted to do congestion pricing and they just didn't have the people in that administration to do this kind of work. So Bloomberg and his, uh, one of his deputy mayors hired Jeanette Sadekan to become the head of the city DOT. And she said, I need to bring a bunch of totally new people into the transportation department if we're gonna do this. And some of them have been really tough critics of yours and your and the person I'm gonna replace. And he said, I don't care about that. And so that was this major lightning strike. We have good leadership and good leadership realizing they needed to do this. And so we had a lot of, a lot of us who are in um, public space advocacy, bicycle advocacy, um, pedestrian safety advocacy ended up inside the transportation department. And we started getting all these news articles about the inmates having taken control of the asylum, um, <laughs> you know, which was great. Um, and it was a good feeling. And I had been doing this for 20 some years. So, it, and, and at different times in different parts of the New York region, we had found people to work with in different local governments and even in the state governments in New Jersey. So I could see what would happen. You know, I had a good sense of how things worked when all of a sudden the government was on your side. What you needed to do then was go in and really support them strongly, even if it wasn't 100% your ideology. Because even though, you know, the transportation department's now doing what you like, the rest of society still needs to be convinced. It's not just, that's not the end of the battle, that's kind of the beginning. Because then you have to go take a lane out, you have to take 300 parking spaces away, you have to do all this change. And change is brutally hard for humans. Yeah. And especially ones who own cars, uh, who feel like something's being taken away. Yeah, and in such a car-centric place yeah. in the US. And so the way that you went about that was you brought in temporary, well, temporary trial stuff that um, like that kind of planters and bollards mm -hmm. and just sort of stuck things in and, and kind of see how they work. And then if they work, then you'd make something more permanent. It was very sort of innovative, actually, wasn't it? A lot of cities have since followed New York's lead on that. Yeah, and I wish I wish more would do it. And and now at Transit Center, we're trying to talk about how can we even do that with public transport using buses because they're flexible and just start taking lanes, building new stops, thinking about ways to make them move faster and, and you know, show people that that it matters and people care about it. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's a that's a big step in a lot of American cities. Yeah. Um, but but the, the fast, you know, part of it was an institutional fluke, which is that the New York City Construction Agency is terrible and it takes forever to do even simple things and things that the mayor wants. Um, so even before Jeanette was hired and before the sort of reform group arrived, um, the city transportation department, which works in the mediums of traffic signals and painted lines and curb regulations, um, was trying to figure out ways to get around those that construction agency and do things themselves. And so if they were creating a, a sort of what we call an operational agenda where you could, you could really just change the regulation. Our, our protected bike lane started just by moving the cars away from the curb yeah. and creating a space between the parked cars and the sidewalk so that, so that you had a new third space on the street. And we could do that without building anything. And so part of it was a response to an institutional problem in New York, which was let's just start changing the streets without building anything. And then that allowed us just to move so so fast. And Jeanette is a very impatient person, so it was perfect because we could just do these things. And you know, there was also the um, the political clock was running because at the time Bloomberg only had two and a half le years left in a term, and so there was another institutional change that happened later that gave him four more years. So we actually got six years to do this work, but we didn't know it at the time. No. So we were really trying to go as fast as possible in you know starting in 2007. So he thought that was going to be his last two years and he just kind of thought well this is the right thing to do I've got nothing to lose I may as well just sort of go ahead and, and I don't do think it, he I don't think he thought I don't, he doesn't really think that way he doesn't think I have nothing to lose I think he thought it's the right thing to do so yeah. let's try it and um, and and that was good because even when he realized then he was going to run for a third term you know he closed Times Square to cars that same year. Yeah. And it's interesting because a lot of politicians would think that, you know, the motorist is such a powerful voter or such a powerful voice and um, any sort of changes to the roads quite often called sort of war on the motorist. We get this kind of um, language in this country about um, changes to the streets. But um, actually, it seems like 
politician who supports these moves to make cycling, to make walking, to make public transport better, actually has the support of people. And I think that's something that a lot of politicians don't necessarily realize. I think in a city like New York, where um, only you know about half of the households have a car, hmm. the politics can add up. Yeah. And when you show leadership and you just explain things plainly to people, there's also a lot of support even with people who have cars. Like, you know, we were we were getting just killed in the in the tabloid media for a good portion of that six years over bike lanes. It just became this cultural thing about, um, you know, old New York and newer New York. Mm. And sounds very um, familiar. And it was, you know, and 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 in seeing it close up you know, in millions of public meetings that I went to. Yeah. It was absolutely generational. Um, 95% of the people fighting us hard were over 55. Yeah. And almost everybody under 40 thought it was axiomatic that we should be doing much, much more of this. Yeah, this is very much this sort of situation in London. And it's interesting because I think, yeah. I think politically people are afraid of this, of this quite loud voice of the older generation of perhaps bodies with vested interests. Um, organizations with vested interests and sort of keeping the roads the same and, and and have this kind of paralysis as a result no I think it's it's I think it's a very small minority that's actually holding things back mm. in in the cities that are the scale of London and New York and that are absolutely public transport based yeah. um, you know I think and you know and it's not said very often but it's generally rich people with cars who are the problem mm. I mean I can't imagine that there's a huge demand to drive around the West End by normal people, yeah, but and I, and the street the streetscape would allow you to pedestrianize the whole thing, yeah. And as you're building things like uh, cross rail and your bike network, it's just absurd to give any of that space. To yeah, cars. less than five percent of people, I think, of Londoners actually drive in London every every week. So it's, right. it's a very small percentage. Yeah, it's interesting. So you you sort of you still face these difficulties. These people saying it's going to be Armageddon on the roads, um, but sort of went ahead anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't the people. So my point about getting beat up by the newspapers um, it sort of reached a crescendo at the end of 2010 and, and into 2011. It became such a it's such a public battle. Um, and it really it really was just a few places, a few grouchy neighborhoods that were creating a, a, a fight. And the newspapers knitted them together into this citywide mm. problem, which it wasn't. Um, the people who measure public opinion look at the headlines. And so they started yeah. asking people about bike lanes in New York. And so the first poll came out and it was two thirds said, yes, we should have many more of these. And over the next two or three years, there were seven or eight similar polls. And it was always two thirds of people saying, yes, we should do more of this. And that really just took the edge off the, um, it took the edge off the battle completely. And when we then launched City Bike in, in 2013 and you know, the first day we had 10,000 rides and it just went up from there. And you had reporters riding them, politicians riding them, paparazzi chasing celebrities riding them. <laughs> um, it kind of ended the debate about whether there was demand for cycling in New York. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a similar thing to um, what we found in London, that if you build decent cycling infrastructure, I don't know if you've seen some of the videos of the of the super highways. Yeah, no, I've, ridden up, and, I've ridden up yeah. and down the Thames and, and yeah. the, some of the north-south route. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. So, how effective do you think the program was in in New York? What you sort of I think the, the the greatest test of it so far has been that you know Mayor Bloomberg left office at the end of 2013, yeah. who was succeeded by Bill De Blasio, who ran uh, a campaign as the anti Bloomberg. He wanted to, um, you know, he ran on a a platform of social equality mm -hmm. and you know branding Bloomberg as a billionaire who was out of touch, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but none of the streets policies has been changed. And, and, and so de Blasio came up with Vision Zero as his own way to his own rubric or his own brand mm. for doing much more of what we had started. Uh, so I, and I stayed in for the six, first six months of, of his uh -huh. term um, because there were some issues with City Bike we wanted to work out. And yeah. I saw this opportunity to, uh, to help shape Vision Zero, yeah. which, which grew out of his electoral campaign. It wasn't something that he announced after getting into office. Because oh. um, you were, because I knew that you were um, quite instrumental in Vision Zero. I thought that you'd written the policy. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I coordinated the drafting of uh, De Blasio's uh, initial Vision Zero action yeah. plan. Yeah. He, when he came in in January of 2014, there was a, a couple of horrific crashes which which killed some kids, 
And to his credit, he went out to the site and met the parents where that happened. And he, at, at that, you know, and he already been talking about Vision Zero mm -hmm. during the fall election race. Yeah. And he said, I want, I want an action plan from the key agencies in 30 days. And so I was in place to, to put that together. And which was a you know fantastic uh, opportunity. Yeah, and it's been effective. There was a report out last month um, saying that pedestrian deaths have dropped by forty five percent between twenty thirteen and twenty seventeen. Yeah, and most importantly, all traffic deaths have have reduced each year of of De Blasio's term. Yeah, since and, Vision Zero was introduced. Yeah, no, and and he put a lot of political capital into it in twenty fourteen. So he, in in the states, we have to deal with the state governments which have a lot of power yes. over the cities and um, are more important in a lot of ways to cities than the federal government. And so he, he went to the state government and got the authority to reduce the speed limit in New York and to start using um, speed cameras for yeah. the first time yeah. in the city. And th those two things together have made a big difference. But also continuing the bike lane network, all of the safety street changes, um, that you know, which is a program that, you know, that started under Jeanette. Um, you know, the, the department's still doing fantastic projects, reshaping streets every year. Yeah. And so, you know, the body of those, of, of the amount of streets that have been changed is, you know, is expanded dramatically since in the last 10 years. And, and you know, to de Blasio's credit, that keeps happening. Yeah. And other cities are now following suit. Um, in London, <laughs> we're set to introduce our own Vision Zero as part of the mayor's transport strategy mm -hmm. um, to reduce, um, for no one to be killed by a London bus by 2030 and all deaths and serious injuries from road collisions to be eliminated by 2041. Um, the majority of people killed and injured, of course, are pedestrians, cyclists and people on motorbikes. Right. Uh, do you think we need um, a Vision Zero? And what do you think it would take in to make it successful in a city like well, London? One, one of the things that I really noticed about Vision Zero is that it focuses attention on the issue in a way yeah. that just saying we have a safety policy does not. I mean, we were doing all of these things under Bloomberg and Jeanette. We, we, we were using the um, crash data every year to find the worst places. So we had a rolling program to go and just reshape the streets using our tactical, rapid um, you know, palette of, of techniques so that if a street had a lot of speeding, you could take a lane out and put in a protected bike lane as a way to reduce the weaving and the ability to, to go as fast. You could fill in intersections so that pedestrians had a lot more space, a lot more visibility. You could start to narrow strange lane and a half width streets, which are very dangerous because nobody knows exactly what to do. So there's, a, a, there's, I don't know, there are probably literally hundreds of ways to increase predictability and visibility and reduce speeds on streets. And we were doing all of those on a rolling basis mm -hmm. based on the data. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think the city should be doing is reviving that kind of spirit of participation with Vision Zero and getting people in to talk about what's changed, what's worked, and what hasn't, and make, and, and keep and keep that sort of excitement around the idea going. Mm. And that hasn't really happened, even though, you know, the mayor did put that early political capital into it. He doesn't come back to the issue frequently yeah. enough, in my view. And having that having that goal of zero does really focus minds in your experience. Yeah, no, and it, but it, it also creates a certain it creates a cycle of sort of aggressiveness in terms of the strategies because. No matter how good you did in 2017, you need to do better in 2018. Yeah. So you can't you can't just keep doing the same things and expect it to. You have to keep finding new ways to to go after it. And you know, New York has been reducing traffic deaths since 1990. It was a, like at an unbelievable level when you think about it from today's point of view. Um, but in 1990, it was obvious where you could go and just reduce a, like dozens of people being killed because there were literally highways running through neighborhoods yeah. that were in you know disguised as city streets. And if you just went out and started to fix that, you could get rid of like 25 deaths a year in a few obvious places. But as the number gets lower, you don't have those clusters. There's much, there are much more subtle patterns that you have to find mm. to go after. Um, and it's not just one horrible street. It's, it's lots of uh, sort of little mistakes that are happening here. And yeah. There. And so the, the policies have to be more subtle, but also more aggressive to sort of reduce those kind of random things from happening. Yeah. So you absolutely have to stay at it and you have to report on how it's going. So I think there's an implied transparency to this. You really need to have like a monthly report on fatalities and injuries that everybody can see. 
uh, and if you and, and you need to put it online and you need to make it open data so that other people can can analyze it. Yeah. If you don't have that, it's very hard to say we're making progress on Vision Zero because it's not like some kind of oddball public transport metric that nobody understands. The metric of performance and success is, you know, it's brutally obvious. Yeah. And if more and we're seeing a lot of, you know, we sort of sort of saw kind of a, a fad in, in the U.S. where all these cities were like, yes, Vision Zero, we want that. And you would just get mayors who were like captivated by the rhetoric and they wanted that. But they were they had no safety policy at all. So Los Angeles declared Vision Zero and their pedestrian fatalities went up like 30 percent the next year. They just didn't have anything ready to go. Yeah. So they, they, you know, New York is very unique in that yeah. places that Vision Zero was launched on top of a lot of aggressive safety improvements. Yeah. And I think London's in that place. London has a better safety record than New York. Probably only half the number of people killed per year, you know, per 100,000 or per capita. So London's in a great place to start. And what and London has really good people to design streets. So what Vision Zero should do is unleash people in TFL and the better borough governments to say, okay, you want zero? Here's what it's going to take. You're going to have to close that road. You're going to have to squeeze that capacity in half. You're going to have to stop worrying about all these people crying about the uh, super highways um, because you're not going to get it down if you if you you know think you can just tinker with signal timing or add a few cameras. Yeah, and as you just mentioned, London is a city of boroughs, 32 of them, um, and they they sort of own and manage 95% of London's roads basically. So we have a very patchy situation in the city apart from those um, that kind of main network that TfL runs. Um, we've basically got like 32 different ideas of you know what the roads should be used for, who should be prioritized. And of course we've got these local elections coming up um, at which point we have this sort of political capital in a way. I mean we've got the sort of pre-election period. When people can start asking, you know, what are you doing to make the roads safer? What are you doing to reduce congestion and pollution? And I was wondering, from your experience as both a campaigner and someone working in the city government, how sort of how best to capitalise on that pre-election period and the and the sort of post-election time when perhaps politicians feel like they have got the space to do something brave. Well, I think for campaigners, it's it's pretty simple. It's you know the the, the mayor is saying it. Some of the borough governments may say it. So then, what's what's your problem if you're not saying it, and you you know, and people need to go ask that question. Yeah. Um, are you okay being the, you know, you know, accept, acceptable level of death borough, um, or are you a Vision Zero borough? And what is the acceptable level of death, by the way, if you're not yeah. willing to go to Vision Zero? Um, so I think you know those questions, those hard questions can can be asked of the boroughs, um, if. So and I think and I think. To the extent you have um, candidates who are for this kind of thing, it's it's you know it's a pretty simple issue, and and um, you know you can you can say or well you know you can say to your opponent what what is that acceptable level of death and and why is it acceptable just because you need twenty percent twenty seconds less on your car trip around the around the neighborhood yeah um, I mean I've always said you know the beauty of a big city is that you can work with the people who are willing to work with you. And so maybe there are some boroughs that are going to go faster further. Um, you know, I understand the city of London is interested, um, yeah. you know, in this direction. Um, but then there will then be outliers and, you know, hopefully TFL reports the data by borough and by geography. And so you can start to see where where the issues are. Yeah, and that's pretty. That's pretty sort of stark way of putting it, isn't it? You know how how many deaths are acceptable, how many serious injuries are acceptable yeah. to you as an elected right, and how many are happening in Islington versus Battersea or yeah. something like that. Yeah, to you have know. that comparison. Yeah. So that sort of grassroots pressure has been important. I mean, you were sort of kind of came from the campaigning side, and you said that you were there. Um, ready when when sort of politicians were ready, so right. which I thought was quite interesting. Um, well, and that and that was critical when, you know, as as the Bloomberg years were winding down in 2012 and 13, you know, that ecosystem of of pressure groups, you know, was thinking like, how do we make sure this doesn't get rolled back? Mm. And so that that will be another issue for the campaigners in um, 2020 2021. As de Blasio's years start to come to an end, yeah. how do we how do we prevent any kind of backlash on this stuff? 
I mean, the good news is the constituencies for it grow all the time because people are enjoying the bike lanes and the new plazas and the safer streets. Yeah. And you, you know, it's very hard to be the mayor who said, I, you know, I, I stopped Vision Zero. <laughs> like we're, we're, we're getting rid of Vision Zero. Yeah, or to be the borough that's like people are saying, well, where's where's where are our public spaces? Why are we still prioritizing? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think trans was it? Yeah, Transit Center described public transport problems as human rather than technological. Um, um, but you, I think you've been quoted as saying that um, innovation will be critical for cities and states attempting to meet the challenges they face. And of course, now we have these. Um, technological challenges such as driverless cars these ride sharing mm -hmm. things they're sort of ride sharing buses sure and i wonder what you feel are the, are the challenges and the innovations needed to manage transportation around these i think i think one i mean one of the big challenges we see and, and it may be more pronounced in the united states just because of silicon valley's presence there is the tremendous hype coming out of all of this stuff about how it is a technological revolution. Yeah. And sure, there are all kinds of technological changes happening all the time with information technology, but um, Uber is really a taxi. It's just a, it's just a taxi that's hailed with a phone, a smartphone yeah. with an app. But obviously, if your business is to jam huge numbers of cars into the most crowded parts of cities at the most crowded parts of day, that doesn't work for the city. Yeah. And the cities need to sort that out. Yeah. So, you know, obviously they've exposed a huge flaw in the congestion charging policy here, which is that they're exempt. Yeah. As they probably should pay by mile uh, or by minute. Um, and their onslaught in New York has allowed congestion pricing to come back onto the agenda, even though the, you know, the government is not, the, the, neither the state nor the city are, you know, for all the nice things I've said about de Blasio, he, he doesn't understand transportation. He understands an, an, an easy concept like Vision Zero and traffic safety, and he's allowed that to go, and, and I credit him with that. But he doesn't, he doesn't get the rest of it in terms of we need to reduce congestion, we need to have fewer cars, yeah. we need a lot more investment in public transit that works. Um, and just realizing that it's not technology, it's we just need to make some priorities. Um, it's not technology, you know, for a lot of American cities, an innovation would simply be creating a bus lane where people are held up by a few motorists, but dozens of people in the bus. Um, so those are things that you can do. And as we've shown in New York, you can change streets quickly and you can have a bus lane that goes from an idea to implementation in under a year if you're real about it. But you have to... You know, it takes leadership and you have to be courageous and you have to realize that there will be noise and then you will, you will, the project will work and the noise eventually will go away. Yeah, that's interesting. You said about, um, about technology and about how making it easier, because that's, that's the thing about things like Uber, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That, um, that it is kind of the easiest thing for people to do. They can just like, they can just put something on their phone. It's cheap and, right. and there is no sort of, and I think if there were a financial incentive perhaps or financial mm -hmm. disincentive such as congestion pricing right um that would make it um, that would kind of weigh yeah. things in favor of public transport. i mean and just so just introducing supply and demand which obviously has a long history as a concept yeah. <laughs> but applying it to our streets is innovative mm. and yes i mean yeah you couldn't have done it here without the kind of um you know camera camera license plate reading and yeah. toll tag reading technology that was available in 2003 it's gotten better. Yeah, you can you can do more with it. You could, I'm sure, you could do time of day charging and um, charging it. You know, at congested portals and other other kinds of things that would help things dramatically. Yeah, and there is this conversation now about congestion pricing. Both well, it's a big conversation in New York at the moment. Sure. There's been a sort of big um, debate and a bit of a fight again between the um, city and the state government. Um, but it's also an issue in London as well that's being discussed. And again, the mayor's transport strategy has talked about um, improving the congestion charging system, which, as you say, is um, pretty old now, actually, mm -hmm. um, either to charge at busier times of day or charge per mile for using the roads. But I think, I think again, there's this kind of fear of, you know, can we do this? What will happen and mm -hmm. if we do? And at some point, we have to meet those targets in London of, what is it, 80% of journeys not by car by 2041. So I guess... How important do you think congestion pricing would, would be? In I think it's very important. I think, I mean, 
I think, you know, the, the, the word here is that the streets have refilled with congestion and people are just eating the cost, yeah. right? Yeah. Or, or that they've, you know, the exempt for hire vehicles have displaced the, um, the, the charged private vehicles. Mm. So there the clearly needs to be a refresher on the policy. Um, and Uber and those kinds of companies will need should should pay. There should be much, you know, they're already undercutting costs and losing money to just to be there. Um, mm -hmm. So that you need to really raise the the floor up on the the you know the the costs that they impose on everybody. Um, the beauty of being the mayor of London is it makes you the king of transportation, right? Yeah. Um, you really don't have to answer it to too many people. So it's just going to take the mayor showing you know, the courage to do it. And that's that's all it took. I mean, when Ken was fighting to do it here, it was it was basically Ken versus a couple of newspapers. Um, it wasn't like the public was freaking out about it. No, and it's easy to forget that now, isn't it? Yeah. Because there does seem to be this sort of, I don't know, this sort of fear of the media backlash and like local backlash if, if it's going to affect a certain street. Right, I know, and sure. I mean, it's the, you know, it's the son's job to sell some newspapers, yeah. right? So. <laughs> They'll, they'll, they'll look for the blood in the water and, and a few rich people who are angry about whatever. But yeah. those rich people are going to get an easier ride after the policy is fixed. Yeah. Um, and I think we are seeing reflected in the cycling policy this uh, perhaps a reaction to this kind of backlash or maybe a reluctance to just do it anyway. And, and you know, knowing that the evidence is there for um, reducing car space and increasing cycling pedestrian space. Um, and so we seem to have reached a bit of a pause point in London at the moment. I just wondered if you if you had any thoughts on that. Well, I mean, Lon London's kind of amazing because the um, the numbers of people riding bikes seems to always run ahead of the improvements on the street. And I don't totally understand why, maybe because the tube is so expensive mm -hmm. um, or just people want to ride bikes. But um, the mayor doesn't need new evidence that people will respond if you add to the cycling superhighways. You know those things are going to be filled as soon as they open because yeah. you, th they're on streets already that aren't improved for cycling or improved marginally. Yeah. Yeah, because you get these, um, there's also this kind of fake news which you you got in, <laughs> in New York um, when you were introducing the bike lanes about how they were going to increase congestion and pollution. And, and this seems to have been taken up by the sort of media. And then it's even reached the House of Lords. I wrote a piece recently for The Guardian about how Lords were saying in, mm. in the House of Lords that we know bike lanes cause congestion and pollution, which is, which is not the case at all. But they've no, sort insane. of taken it from the taxi drivers who've taken it taking it to the papers, and it's just sort of grown from there. Yeah, no, and I think you have to take the counterfactual, right? Maybe the streets of London have recongested, but think of think of what the city would be like if you didn't do congestion pricing in 2003. Um, you would have foregone a lot of growth, or the gridlock would be like at a whole other dimension today. So it's you may not have free-flowing streets, but you have a much better situation than you would have if you hadn't done it. And if you weren't improving streets for cycling on a continual basis, despite the fact that more and more Londoners are going to ride bikes, seemingly regardless of what you do, you would have so many more people being killed and hurt. Um, and you would have such less friendly streets. So I think the mayor needs to, to just, you know, maybe he's trying to get through his next campaign into a second term to, to unleash the, uh, you know, unleash the planners at TFL and the implementers there. But um, you know, you really should just, there's such an obvious success. Let's keep replicating the success and show you've made a mark on the city. It's not just, uh, you know, a few more lanes than when you arrived. Yeah, because there was a big, um, big commitment to triple the existing bike lanes. But um, it seems, yeah, it seems unlikely now that that's going to happen. And yeah. I don't know, the standards in terms of delivery and the <clears throat> borough level seem to be sort of, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it wouldn't be too far if he just went, uh, you know, down to spend some time with uh, Anne Hidalgo. Seems to be completely unapologetic about all the whining going on in, in Paris about the war on the car. Um, and, you know, she seems to be doubling down on taking space. And, yeah. And there are far more than two two major cycling superhighways. Yeah. And... Um, in that vein, do you have any sort of words of wisdom for those in Transport for London or City Hall um, looking to meet those targets, 80% of all trips, not well, by vision, car? By Vision Zero is a tremendous opportunity because, yeah. you know, 
when your boss says, I want no one to die, you get to come back and say, here's how we can have no one die. But that means the cycling superhighways. That means taking lanes out of big streets. Mm -hmm. It means pedestrianizing more of the city. So that's your opportunity. Yeah. You're, you're being given a tremendous mandate. So you should just go as hard as you can all the time mm -hmm. to say, okay, what, this will help us with Vision Zero. This will help us with Vision Zero. Um, it's, it's, it's probably the strongest mandate you can get. Safety is much harder to argue with than, you know, climate or congestion or whatever other conversations are going on with. Yeah. But, you know, with safety, again, it's, you know, oh, so what is your acceptable level of death in your neighborhood? Who do you want? Who are you willing to sacrifice? And to pe people who would like to see these safer streets, um, say campaigners or just individuals listening to this, you might think, actually, I would like to see this happen. What can I do about it? help make it happen well i think I, I don't know all the organized groups working on these things there's a group called vision zero london there's the london cycling campaign um, and they're already you know their antennas are very much up on these issues and so they're going to be saying you know vision zero needs to needs to do these things it needs to show continual improvement each year um, and hopefully they'll be taking on the borough governments as well so yeah. i think you know you have to have none of the stuff in new york would have moved ahead um, <clears throat> including their support for the city agencies when they needed it, when, you know, when sort of Orwellian groups like Neighborhood, Neighbors for Better Bike Lanes started <laughs> yeah. in order to stop the bike lanes. Um, you know, the outpouring of both citywide and local groups to counter that and say, no, we asked for this. We want this in our neighborhood. You people complaining about it are wrong um, and you don't represent us. That's really, really important. Yeah. I mean, what you never want to have happen is to be a TFL um, cycling officer and go into a, a, a public meeting in some part of the city and have it be you against the people who live there. You need to at least have a balance of, yeah. of opinion about what you're doing in order to proceed. Because if, if it's you're just like, hey, I'm from, I'm from the, you know, the authority and I have a great idea for your street, that doesn't work well. But if, if you've been asked to come in, that's the best possible thing. Um, I saw you tweeted about um, dockless bikes, yeah. um, your thoughts about dockless bikes <clears throat> in New York and about, um, I mean, obviously we've got them in London too, and, and you you seem to be of the opinion, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that the city needs to work on its own sort of bike share system rather than having two separate systems in. Is that is that right? I'm just wondering why you... Well, I, again, I think I think dockless bikes are part of this hype about like, well, they're the next evolution of the technology, so they must yeah. be good. Um, so the problem with dockless bikes in New York is that this is that the, the de Blasio administration is talking about bringing it to the places that don't have the city bike system. Yeah. So you would have two disconnected systems in different parts of the city, so that you couldn't use, uh, you know, like a mo bike in the Bronx to connect to. A city bike in Harlem and get downtown, and it's they're only trying on a pilot basis this coming year. So yeah. we'll see how it goes. But they're not parallel systems; they're geographically separate systems. So, so you'd have to put ditch one at the border, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> or well, I mean, in reality, all the mo bikes are going to leave the Bronx and come down into Midtown Manhattan because there's just much more travel demand, and mo bike will have to drag them back or pretend it is or whatever. We don't know what's going to be like, but. I just I I think there are some real drawbacks to the these this this model of bike sharing, um, and we experienced it today in Paris trying to use them because, sadly, and I'm a huge fan of the mayor there, but they've really botched the uh, transformation of Velib from its old um, physical system to the new vendor and equipment provider that they're using. So the oh. system is working very poorly. It's a huge. Um, sort of problem for the bike advocates in the city or they're very angry with the with the city for screwing it up so badly um, so we we couldn't we couldn't make it work for us so we were used, trying to use the other systems and some of them work okay but the bikes say like the mo bikes are too short for me because the manufacturer doesn't or the provider doesn't understand the idea of leg extension on a bike um, and that's true of a bunch of those companies. Oh, really? You know, these these aren't transportation companies, and that's yeah. that's the thing that bothers me the most. They don't care about putting bikes on the street to make your city better. They're doing something else, and I, I won't characterize what that is. But um, but the problem with them is 
the, the reliability as regular transportation is very low unless there are huge numbers of them. Yeah. Because if you get a ghost signal on the app, which is a pretty common problem, mm-hmm. and there's no other bike around, then you're just not going to use that bike and you've wasted time. It's, it's not a reliable thing. It's, oh, it's a very marginal approach to bike transportation. And it's kind of a fill-in thing. And it would be probably almost not noticeable if you didn't also have your cycle hire. And just watching the streets, we were here for a day and a half last week. The, the, the cycle hire bikes are everywhere, and we saw one mobile bike in motion. So I think the reliability leads to more usage. Yeah. And just because they have claimed to have the technology on the bike and that's somehow better, it's certainly cheaper. It doesn't make it work better for your city. That's interesting. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you work for Transit Center now. Um, it's an organization that... Um, Kind of, well, maybe you can maybe you can describe what your what it is and what you're working on at the moment with them. Transit Center is a foundation, so we actually have an endowment of money that we can grant to uh, other groups, and which allows us to do um, a lot of things that other public transport groups in our country haven't been able to do. Um, so that's a great opportunity, and I've always been very interested in how can we create what like what does it mean to be a national group in the United States. Um, and most of the groups that are trying to work nationally end up in Washington and they get obsessed with the whole world of the federal government. And the federal government has been useless on transportation well before Trump, and now it's like utterly useless. Um, so they, you know, the federal government farms a fair amount of money out for highways and, and public transit. Yeah. Um, but on a percentage basis, the cities that are doing real investment in public transit and building out a real system like Seattle or Los Angeles are mostly self-funding. You know, there is federal money coming in, but as a percentage, it's not make or break. And even in New York, the federal percentage has started to fall away, even though New York system is so big relative to others in the U.S. that it gets a a lion's share of that money. Um, But focusing on Washington has never been a way to really make change. It's been a way to write checks and make some rules around writing the checks. But the stuff that... Um, Bloomberg and Jeanette did in New York required very little money and no federal authority and uh, and but it required the local leadership and the local willpower and the local political alignment of organizations and people to do it so Transit Center is ignoring Washington altogether and working directly with people in cities around the country and I think that's a critical model for how you change transportation in the U.S. And so in a way, sort of creating the environment like you did in New York, where, where people are ready, you know, once the political will's there, that people right. are ready and organizations are ready. And yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's advantage. kind of like the beauty of the big city, but even bigger. Mm. Um, so you can find the p- people willing to work with you yeah. and create the good examples that leave the rest of the people behind. And eventually they'll either want to catch up or somebody will say, hey, why aren't you catching up? Yeah. And so I'm wondering about what what you think London can learn from your experience in New York and working with different cities around the US in terms of you know, tackling the congestion and the pollution problems that are sort of blighting the city and, and really sort of pushing this agenda of healthy streets that the mayor's talking about and making those changes that make people's neighborhoods easier to walk and cycle and take public transport. Well, I mean, I think the idea of doing things quickly is, is, is something that I haven't seen much in London or Great Britain. It's very much yeah. set piece, like lay siege to a project and, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and take five years to do it. Um, and I think it's you true. could just be, you don't have to do that. You can yeah. reallocate space more quickly. And, you know, I mean, I remember seeing, I don't know, four or five years ago, there was a bike lane on um, Royal College Street. Yeah. There was a borough of Camden, in Camden project. That's right. Where they just sort of moved things around. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that, this is great. They're starting to do stuff like this. And yeah, I, but I, I don't know if that's really taken hold. And you know, and I and I remember old, even older projects like the like the permeable routes, yes. also in Camden, in, where they just were sticking posts into streets. Yeah. And so you couldn't drive through anymore, but you could ride bikes. Yeah. And, you know, let's spread that out more, and so we can start doing it much more quickly. Yeah. I mean, we pedestrianized Times Square um, just two years into this process. Yeah. And that and, was a trial, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, and it was, a, and it was explained as a trial. It said we will study it for six months and, yeah. and 
decide whether it's a permanent or not. And, and, you know, and that wasn't one of those ones saying, you know, where it was like, we'll try this and see, even though you never really had any, you know, intention of pulling it out. Yeah. I mean, we would have had to pull out Times Square um, in that case because it was so high profile. Yeah. And but it that, was. But that again was just paint and, and, and barricades. Exactly. That, that was what I was about to ask you in case, <laughs> in case someone listening um, hasn't seen the stuff in New York. It was quite incredible, wasn't it? Because it was just sort of paint. And then um, Jeanette Steve Khan had um, the transportation commissioner at the time. She had a load of deck chairs brought in because right. I think the chairs that had been ordered hadn't come in in time. Right. So someone went out to a, a DIY shop or something and got all yeah. these deck chairs and just kind of threw them down on the street and and people people flooded in didn't they yeah it was, and it was literally cones and jet and, and lawn chairs and yeah. and um yeah absolutely so I think you can do some of those things and and we saw it in Paris I mean Paris does a nice job building up some of its bike lanes but some of the pedestrian streets it's just they just put some signs in the street and so you can't drive over the signs yeah and that's it um and yeah. certainly in London, it wouldn't be hard to create some new bike lanes where you know there's already huge numbers of people riding. Yeah. Um, and certainly in much of the city, if you created more space for people, they would occupy it. Yeah, and once people see what the space could be used for and kind of reimagine it not as a car space and think, yeah. actually, this is public space. Why are we giving so much over to no, and, and those temporary spaces can be nice for people and you know a construction project is not nice for people so you can you can sort of take the edge off it i mean some, sometime you do have to come in and rebuild it and if you go to times square now there's no sign of the cones or the deck chairs it's yeah. all been you know built out with beautiful pavers and, and the like but um and it's full of people isn't you don't it? have to start that way and you don't yeah. have to limit the the amount of streets you can affect um with a budget or whatever if you just just go quickly and, and develop a kind of a repertoire around those things. You know, having, I, I, you know, we've watched the story in London very closely since, since Ken Livingstone came in, you know, for obvious reasons. But, you know, and, and when we did some of this stuff in New York, it got a lot of attention because it was New York. But London is one of the places that leads the planet. So if you do things here that work and represent positive change, you can change the whole world. It would make it a lot more tempting for a politician looking to perhaps make their mark, you know, thinking that they could change the world by sure. changing yeah, their Sure, yeah, sure. Maybe it's, who knows, it's the mayor of, of Berlin or Sao Paulo or... Great. Well, thanks, John. It's been lovely to talk to you. And thanks again for coming in to you chat to us. My, my pleasure. I've been a fan of Sustrans for quite a while. So I'm now back in the room um, for a bit of a debrief on that conversation with Nick Sanderson, who is the Senior Policy Officer at Strands in London. So yeah, very interesting conversation with John Alcott, I mm. thought. He had lots of good stuff to say about New York and how New York situation and experiences there apply to London. Um, and I was wondering what your sort of take-home things were. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting conversation as well. It seems like when whenever you listen to someone talk like that, there's so many similarities between New York and London. Yeah. It's- great big bustling metropolises with so many of the same challenges with the kind of difficulty in implementing things that change streets right at the start you know he went right back to the early 2000s and talking about having this really healthy ecosystem of community groups and advocacy organizations that were just plugging away and continually putting out their ideas on how these things could happen Um, and then suddenly the political winds kind of changed with Bloomberg yeah, that's right. In a way, we've kind of seen that, I think, in London Yeah. Um, in the last 10, 15 years, probably. Yeah. And just having that uh, political leadership that says, OK, we do need to do this. This is the right thing. Yeah. London has actually quite achieved quite a lot, probably, going mm. back, you know, if you go back to 2000 when TfL was established. Yeah. So as a delivery body for um, Quiet Ways and the like in London boroughs, how do you think and you know obviously you're dealing with boroughs on a on a day-to-day basis in implementing the, in putting in this infrastructure on the streets how do you think we can get sort of vision zero across london's 32 boroughs because of course these are the guys that run and manage um 95 of london's roads mm. they they're in charge of those roads so the bulk of the streets in london yeah well i think the mayor has obviously a, a huge leadership role to play the mayor's transport strategy you know determines what funding will be awarded where to which boroughs. But at the same time, the boroughs are all their own democratically elected councils. And I think what John talked about in terms of setting a Vision Zero target that kind of can't be ignored, that no one's going to 
uh, come out against. Yeah. And continually reporting on that and starting to kind of single out the areas where we can see they're not making good progress. Yeah. The other interesting point that he made was, you know, talking about going into a community meeting and having a balanced audience. I think the people that are are set against something are far more motivated to to Mm. turn up. Yeah, it's easier Um, to complain than it is to compliment. Exactly, yeah. And there is this kind of silent majority. And I think, there, you know, there are people in some of the mini Holland boroughs who've done a really good job at giving a voice to the people who are normally yeah, silent. Yeah, there are some, saying, there are some great ones. Yeah. Um, actually, we really want this. Um, and in terms of the local elections then, because obviously we have a time now where it is possible to influence politicians. Their mm. ears are suddenly open yeah. to, <laughs> to new ideas. I think we've got about 10 days uh, by the time this podcast comes out. Um, it's a funny one because local elections are one of those ones where the turnout is always surprisingly low. But the... Mm. The fact is, you know, as you said earlier, these 32 borough councils that are all standing for election right now control 95% of London streets. Yeah. And this is the kind of biggest opportunity we have to to talk to them about what we want. Yeah. What we've come up with uh, for the local elections is just a set of, uh, a small set of asks, and we're calling them a Street for People pledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can find that on our website, sustrans.org.uk forward slash streets for people 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're asking the council candidates, the leadership candidates, to uh, make their commitment to those pledges. Yeah, and and also um, the London Cycling Campaign and Living Streets have got together to do the My Livable London campaign. So they're asking for the council leaders again to to make a, a bid for this Livable Neighbourhoods funding, and then for the, some of the boroughs I think that have been successful in in getting some early funding so far, they're yes. asking them to deliver to a sort of certain standard. Boroughs can really make quite a big difference over the next four years. Yeah. And so it's really crucial right now to get them to pledge to do that. Yeah. How do we make sure what they're asking probably Sustrans to build is going to be decent? Uh, getting them to sign up to these pledges before the election, <laughs> <laughs> holding them to account. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. All right. It was great to talk to you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Laura. Thanks again to Laura Laker and John O'Cut for their time. Laura's on Twitter, at LakerLikes. And you can find out more about John's work at transitcentre.org or follow him on Twitter at John Orcutt. To sign up for our live Street Talk events, visit sustrans.org.uk forward slash street talks. Follow us on Twitter or find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a review or a rating. As this is our first one, we'd also love to hear your feedback or suggestions for future topics. Street Talks is presented by Sustrans, the charity making it easier for people to walk and cycle.